going to be in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, yeah, you're like, what? Uh, we were in the book of Mark. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12 to start things off. Acts chapter 12, verse number, uh, verse number 12. Acts 12, verse number 12. And we're going to be starting today, like I said, our series on the book of Mark. Uh, the sermon title this morning is simply called, The Beginning. The Beginning. And we'll be looking at our first point, who is Mark? Who is Mark, right? I need, I need Rebecca up here. Who is Mark for 500? Uh, you know, who is Mark? Because many people forget that of the Gospels, uh, two of them are not disciples. And I kind of talked about this a lot last couple weeks ago, but I really want you to understand when reading the Bible, most of the names that are on books of the Bible were not addressed by the author themselves, but by the church in tradition established those names so that the books would be more organized, okay? So that's the big thing to remember. So very rarely in Scripture do we know for a fact 100% certainty that this is the author, okay? Very rarely in Scripture do they say, hey, I'm the author. Now, when it comes to the books of Paul, when it comes to the books of the letters of the New Testament... It's pretty easy to find out it was Paul because he mentions himself so much. He'll mention his name, he'll mention who he's writing to. But when it comes to other books in the Bible, especially when it comes to maybe even some of the Old Testament books, they don't really sign off, hey, this is, you know, Ezra signing off. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, they didn't do that. They didn't have email signatures. They didn't have, you know, hey, phone numbers that went with their addresses. They didn't have any of those things. So church history is kind of like how we know who wrote what books and how we can trust it. So that's really, really crazy critical we understand that. So once again, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, understanding context here, Matthew was not the first gospel written. Many people think it was because it's in the first order of the New Testament, but that's not the correct order chronologically. Uh, because once again, like I said a couple weeks ago, once you get past the Torah, once you get really into past first and second kings, I would say, the Bible kind of gets out of order with the minor prophets. There's a lot of overlapping there's a lot of things out of order, but the thing is, the theme of Scripture is the same, amen? And the theme of Scripture is not for God to give us His timeline. The theme of Scripture is to God to show us His way, amen? Uh, and so, thinking about that, once again, you've got Matthew, who's written first, I mean, first order. You've got Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the main one we're going to talk about this entire sermon series. It's the shortest of the Gospels. And he is not a member of the disciples. He is a guy who's a traveling companion of Paul, and he was otherwise known as Peter's interpreter. And I'm going to really show you how in Scripture we can glean that from the text itself, okay? And then you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke. You've got Dr. Luke, who once again, he kind of gathered information. And then you've got John the Beloved, who is, of course, one of the disciples. So Matthew and John kind of form this sam uh, kind of are there forming the sandwich between, hey, we're a disciple, we're a disciple, but you've got Mark and Luke who were not disciples clear as mud. Uh, okay, so looking at this, who was Mark? Well, you can look in the Bible, and it'll give you a who idea, good idea who Mark was. Look at Acts chapter 12, verse number 12. This is after Peter is released from prison by the angels, right? That miraculous uh, prison escape. Um, you know, and look at verse number 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhonda came to answer, and recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she not opened the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning 
to them with his hands to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So look at, once again, verse number 12. It says they were at a home of a person's name by the name of Mary. And Mary was the mother of John, whose name was Mark, who were there gathered together and were praying. So this is the, the, a very, very unique thing in Scripture. Look what it says here. We know that the only John Mark mentioned in Scripture is this guy. This is the only guy who's mentioned by John Mark's name. Because once again, reading the text here, you can really see that John Mark grows up in Jerusalem because his mother lives in Jerusalem and that she is a Christian because she's having people over her house having a prayer meeting to get Peter out of prison. So this is pretty amazing. Just by us reading the text, just by looking at the Bible as our first source, which is always the best source, amen, um, looking at the text here, we can see that John Mark grew up in a Christian home. We can see that John Mark had two names. He had a Hebrew name and he had a, uh, a Greek name, or you could even say maybe even a Roman name, you could argue. And so that name, John Mark, is exactly the person who wrote this gospel. So the gospel is really the gospel of John Mark. Why in the world did they drop the John? Because there's already a John, right? There's already a gospel according to John. So it's pretty cool that the early church, early church tradition said we need to kind of scratch off John Mark and just go with Mark. Why? Because we want you to understand that they're not the same stories, but they are two people who truly maybe witness these things. Because here's the great thing about John Mark. If John Mark grew up in Jerusalem... And John Mark is alive when Peter just gets out of prison just some few years after the ascension. Then that probably means that John Mark grew up in Jerusalem whenever Jesus was walking the streets. That probably means that John Mark, even though he's going to write off of Peter's memory, even though he's going to write off of Peter's sermons, even though he's going to be literally writing down Peter's sermons for the majority of his life, that he probably himself witnessed the very miracles he's writing about in his gospel. Can you fathom that? Can you fathom being a young Jewish boy growing up in Jerusalem and hearing about this man who claims to be the Messiah and then maybe even seeing some of the miracles that took place in the gospels? Pretty crazy, right? Pretty amazing. So just who is John Mark? We know that he grew up in Jerusalem. We know he had a family of, he comes from a family of believers. We know this is probably our guy. Pastor Nick, I'm going to need a little bit more than that. How do I know that he ran around with Peter? Because Peter tells us he did. In 1 Peter chapter, 12, chapter 5, verse number 12, it says, By Silvanus, Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Verse number 13, she who is a Babylon, who likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to all of you who are in Christ. So Mark, my son here, once again, that's John Mark. That's our boy, John Mark. So here's the cool thing. Once again, stay with me. I'm trying to get you to read the Bible and do a little bit of research and study and find out some major things here. So we know he grew up in Jerusalem. We know he was raised by Christian mom and dad. We know his mom was a leader in the early church house movement. We know that his family faithfully believed in prayer. And we know that, guess what? He had a personal connection with Peter that maybe even started on this day in Acts. Because in 1 Peter chapter 5, what does he say? He says, and I send my love to Mark, who is like a son to me, who is like a son to me. So this guy, John Mark, who wrote this gospel, has so much 
so is surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses here that he has literally traveled with Peter so much so, has such a close communion with Peter that guess what? He says, Peter says this about John Mark, that guess what? He's like a son to me. He's like a son to me, and I love him so much so. I can see some of you just like, oh, this isn't that big a deal. It's not that cool. It is really cool. It's really, really cool stuff. You can see this in Scripture. And also, not only does Mark have a unique relationship, John Mark have a unique relationship with Peter and with the church in Jerusalem, but he has a unique relationship with Paul. Because John Mark, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, it says this, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. He is very useful to me for ministry. Because here's what we also know from the book of Acts. We also know not only that he grew up in Jerusalem, we also know that not only does he have a good, outstanding Christian community he grew up in, we also know that he has a great relationship with Barnabas. We also know that he is probably Barnabas' cousin. And we also know that he travels with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary trip, one of their first missionary trips, and guess what? He leaves them. He leaves them, and the next time they go on a trip, he wants to go, and guess what happens? A quarrel breaks out. That's what the Bible says. Intense fellowship, you could say, amen. Like me and my wife, we don't argue. We just have intense fellowship, amen. Uh, you know, we, we have fellowship, intense fellowship. And if a, disc, a, a problem breaks out, Barnabas wants to take John Mark, and Paul wants to take Silas. Because Paul says what? John Mark has deserted me before. I'm not bringing him with me. And so it's beautiful to see this in Scripture that literally Barnabas and Paul kind of split off. And God even uses that conflict to advance the gospel, amen? God even uses that quarrelsome environment to advance the gospel. And so what happens next is, guess what? Eventually, they smooth things over. Why? Because of 2 Timothy. Because of 2 Timothy, at the end of Paul's life, when he is literally probably getting ready to die in the next few years... He is in prison. He's had a lot, a lot of uh, problems going on with his life. He says, what? I want you to bring John Mark to me because he is useful to me in the ministry. So if you think about somebody in the Bible, somebody who is around the right people, somebody who the Holy Spirit could use to write a faithful testimony of Jesus' account on the earth, this guy fits all the bills. This John Mark fellow. And here's the thing. I didn't even use history to bracket this up. I'm using the very word of God to back up what the Bible says about itself. Amen. That this guy, John Mark, had all these unique things about him. He ran around with the early church. He ran around with Peter. He ran around with Paul. His cousin was Barnabas. Amen. They had such a strong spiritual community around him that he probably, more than likely, even saw some of these miracles he's going to write about in his gospel. This is crazy. Crazy to think about. On a historical level, though, you think about this. This book, John Mark's Gospel, was the first gospel written. It arrived somewhere in the 50s. So that's 20 years after the ascension. That's very, very fresh material for after a major event. And I know there's some of you in here, you might be a skeptic. You might be thinking, Pastor Nick, I don't believe just about anything I hear after 20 years of hearing it because the facts can get, straight, get knocked out. of. Let me just remind you of something. When you were to come in contact with somebody like Jesus, who did the things Jesus did, who said the things Jesus said, and remember, he's not writing about his own things, his own memories. He's writing down Peter's memories because he travels with Peter. He's known as Peter's interpreter more often than not. So the problem many people think is, well, doesn't some of the Bible get lost in translation? It's been 20 years 
after the ascension. Surely to goodness there were some facts that got crossed, there was some information that got lost. Well, that's not true at all if you really think about real life. Why? Because when something massive and startling happens to all of us, we all remember it very, very collectively. Why? Because it was very, very important to us in the moment. I can prove it to you. Today is September the 11th. September the 11th, it's been 21 years, and I promise you, you can remember very, very vivid details about this day 20 years ago. Can't you? Because why? It was an earth-shattering moment in your life. It was a moment that thousands and millions of us, millions you could even say, saw and witnessed firsthand, and that edged into our memories that we would never forget that day. So when you see, the, when you see even the horrific and you see the miraculous as far as when it comes to Jesus here. You would never, ever mix up the details and get the details messed up. Why? Because here's the thing. The people who actually saw this stuff, they were still living, church. Think about that. So John Mark couldn't lie. He couldn't make up stories. Why? Because the witnesses who saw these things were still alive. And if people were still alive who saw these things, when somebody started saying false stories, you know what they say? That's wrong. That's not how that happened. That's called eyewitnesses' accounts, right? So that's how we know this is an accurate story. Well, this is how we know this is an accurate portrayal of Jesus' life. Why? Because it's, less, it's like 20 years after the ascension. 20 years after the ascension, Mark, John Mark is in Rome. He's in a house church in Rome. He's writing down this gospel. He's writing down this gospel. And remember, he's been traveling with Peter. He's been traveling with Paul. He's been traveling with all these people who know a lot about church and know a lot about Jesus' ministry. And he's been writing down all these stories. And he eventually has time to sit down and compile his gospel, compile, inspired by the Holy Spirit, what he believes to be the Lord's life. And he sits down to write it in Rome at a church there in a house church in Rome, and he writes it to the Romans. Because here's the thing, many people don't understand this, that the Gospels weren't written to, in, to everybody, like you might think they are. And I'd say that in all due respect. They were written to everybody, but at the time they were written for certain people groups. How do I mean by that? Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. How do I know that? His language throughout the entire Gospel is very much saturated in Judaism. He talks a lot about Jewish law. He talks a lot about Old Testament prophecies. He opens up with a genealogy. So he wants you to understand that Jesus is Jewish. And not only is he Jewish, but he is the promised Messiah. That's why Matthew opens up with a genealogy and everything else he opens up with. Why? Because he wants you to really understand Jesus is the Messiah from David's line. You might say, why does that matter, Patrick? Why, why in the world would you even say that? Because that's how Matthew opens his gospel. He opens his gospel addressing a Jewish crowd, addressing his Jewish brothers to win them for Christ. So I'm going to talk about Mark in a minute, but then we skip over to Luke. How do I know Luke was written to Gentiles? Luke was written to, Gent written to Gentiles, which is me and you. We're not Jews, we're Gentiles, because Luke is a Gentile himself. He's a Gentile. He writes to Gentiles as well because he opens up with the birth narrative, but he doesn't just stop with the Jewish genealogy. He traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam, proving that Christ did not come just to die for the Jew, but he came to die for the whole world. Guys, this is critical. I'm telling you, I, this is critical for you understanding and reading the Bible accurately. You've got to understand why they were written and who they were written to. Then you got John. 
John chapter 1, John's writing his gospel. You could arguably say for the whole world in a sense, but he has such strong Christology, which means he has a strong theological perspective of Jesus. Why? Because he opens up his gospel, what? In the beginning was the Word, right? So in the beginning was the Word. You think about how as soon as a Jewish audience reads that, they think in the beginning, that's Genesis. They beeline. As soon as they read that word, in the beginning, that takes them all the way back to Genesis. So John's really saying, that guess what? Jesus existed before the very dawn of creation because he's been eternal with the Father ever since. All right, some of you are bored out of your minds. I can tell by looking around, amen? Just thum, 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 thum. You're like, can we get to the application? Uh, you know, I mean, because this is really crazy important, church. I really want us to get this. Why? Because if you don't understand the context, if you don't understand who it was written to and why it was written from and who wrote it, you'll get it out of context. If you get the Bible out of context, it becomes a weapon in your hand instead of God's word to us. And it gets really, really dangerous. Really, really dangerous. So it's very important we understand who Mark was, who his audience was, and what his purpose was. His purpose was to strengthen the church. His purpose was to let them know that Jesus was the suffering servant. That's his overall theme of the book of Mark, is Jesus was and is the suffering servant. He wants them to understand that. Why? Because you've got to understand the context in Rome around 50 AD, tides are shifting. The Romans used to be a little bit violent, but now the violence is really cranked up. You have a massive persecution that's fixing to hit the church wide open. And you always ask me what is the most encouraging thing you can give to people who are suffering? Remind them of the hope they have in Jesus. Remind them of the hope they have in Jesus. So he takes his pen and his parchment and he begins to write out this gospel, encouraging the church to guess what? You can suffer because he suffered. And you will overcome. Why? Because he overcame. And it's so funny to me that oftentimes when we are discouraged, we go to the news when we should be going to the good news. Because the same good news that was good for them is good for us today. It's the best news. And so that's a little bit of a theological intro to really understanding who wrote the book, what it was for, and the purpose of it. Now we get into the, the verses. Amen. Are you excited? Contain your excitement. So we'll be looking at... Mark chapter 1, verse number 1. That's all we're going to cover today. Chris, you got your notebook, amen? Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse number 1. So point number 2, and we'll be done, amen? We've got to get through this, and you'll be out of here. Who is Jesus, according to John Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit? In Mark 1, verse number 1, chapter 1, verse number 1, look what he does here. I want you to leave this up here, Chris, because I'm going to really try to, to break this down so people can really understand what I mean by reading the text powerfully here, reading, reading it with the full eyes open. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So many people, when they read a book, who in here skips the introduction? Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed, Damien. You know who you are. Uh, you know, many people, they skip the introduction and get right through it. They don't even think about it. When really an introduction to the book kind of introduces a thesis, introduces a big, big topic, hey, this is what this book is about. This is why I'm writing this thing. Some of you, you don't even care about that, amen. You're thinking epilogue, schmeckalogue, amen. I don't care about any of it. But to understand here, when we're reading the Bible, whenever Mark is laying out the stage here, the very first verse sets up the whole entire book. The first book, remember that? First verses set up the entire book. So here he says what? The beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel. 
Once again, when he writes that, to us reading it, we don't think much about it, but you should have learned this when I talked about John. Anytime a Jew was reading this, or even maybe a Gentile, anybody else was reading this, they would hear the beginning, for a Jew especially, and they would take the beginning, and they would go all the way back to Genesis. Because in the beginning, God said what? Let there be light, right? You remember that from from Genesis 1-1. So in the beginning here, he is really getting to understand that God's fixing to do something new. That God's fixing to do something big. That God's fixing to announce a big announcement. How do I know he's fixing to announce a big announcement? Why? Because in the, be- the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel. So we hear a gospel. We throw it around like confetti. We don't think much about it. But a gospel to them was not just books in a Bible. They weren't, they weren't written yet, amen. It wasn't just something you say in church. No, gospel to them meant two things. Whenever they heard the term the gospel, they thought either two things. They either thought of a battle. Because a gospel announcement was a good news report that came from the battle that whenever the king had won, your king had won, there would be messengers who would come back and say, the king has been victorious. The king has won the battle. It was good news. It was the gospel, right? It was a gospel, a pronouncement saying the kingdom has won. The second way the gospel term was used was not only a battle term, but it was a political term. It was a political term, meaning, guess what? There's a great announcement of somebody who was born. So somebody who was born, it was a royal announcement saying, guess what? The king has a decree. Maybe it was an announcement, maybe it was an engagement, whatever it was. It was a king decree of royal magnitude saying, guess what? The king has spoken. So whenever he says here, the beginning of the gospel... The beginning of the gospel, what, what is going on here, church, is many people don't understand this, but whenever Jesus steps on the scene, as soon as Jesus was born through the virgin, as soon as Jesus took his very first breath on this side of eternity, the devil lost. I'm going to say that to you again because I think you missed it, amen. Thump. As soon as Jesus was born, hell lost. The grave lost. The devil lost before he even did anything. You might think, well, he didn't die on the cross yet. You don't understand. As soon as Jesus appeared, the kingdom of God invaded. The kingdom of God invaded on such a magnitude scale that, guess what, all of eternity shifted. Why? Because no longer do men have to come to God, but God came to us. That God came to us. And so you think about that, the... Mark beautifully here says the gospel because I think he really means both ways. He says, not only has God invaded, but he's also announcing that he's already won. So not only has he won already, but he's announcing it very openly, the gospel of who? Jesus Christ. Now once again, we read Jesus Christ, we don't think about it. But remember, we got to understand, breaking down the text here, Jesus means Joshua. Literally, it means Joshua. And Joshua means what? God's salvation. So whenever Mary is told by the angel, you shall name him Jesus, amen, for her, she automatically remembers, hey, that's Joshua. We're going to name him Joshua. Not only are we going to name Joshua, but she remembered Joshua was the one who led us us out of captivity and led us to the promised land and won our freedom and defeated the enemy in the promised land so we might be saved. But here's the thing, that Joshua was all man, he wasn't God. This Joshua, this Jesus, amen, is all God and all man, and he's not bringing them to a land, he's bringing them out of spiritual bondage. 
So he's saying here, he says what? This Jesus, this Joshua is God's salvation. And not only is he God's salvation, but he's Jesus the Christ. He's Jesus Christ. Many of y'all think Christ was his last name. I mean, you would fail kindergarten, right? Uh, because Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. Because for you to say his name is Jesus, that's right, but the, 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 the angel didn't say you should name him Jesus Christ. No, the church has established, and we have always uh, gave him the honor and the privilege of being called the Christ. Why? Because he is the Christ. Because he is the Messiah. Because the Messiah is the Christ. Christ literally means the Messiah, the one who would rescue us. So not only is he God's salvation, but he's God's Messiah. He's the one who they've been waiting for. So when it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he has shoved all of this explosive theological implications into this one tiny bit of words there to get you to understand that what he's about to write is about to change everything. What he's about to say is about to change everything. And you know exactly what I mean, amen, if you're married. When your wife sends K and then you see the bubble show up, you know it's about to change everything. Because the words that follow about change everything. And that's exactly what he says here. He says what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And look, he, he ups it up a notch. Not only is Jesus God's salvation, not only is he God's Messiah, but he elevates it to another level. What does he say? He says what? He says he's the son of God. He's the son of God. He didn't say he is a son of God. No, he says he is the Son of God. Co-eternal, co-equal, co-essence, co-everything on the same level as God the Father. Remember that from our Trinity series? It's not God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. No, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They're all on the same level because they're all the same out of God. It's a Trinity. It's the beauty of Scripture here. This theme this theme of that he is the Son of God is seen throughout the entire book. That he is the Son of God. Do you think about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? He really wants you to understand. He takes everything that takes Mark, like four, he takes everything that takes like Matthew, four chapters to say, he says it verse number one. He takes everything it takes John to go on a big rant about. He says, boom. Verse number one, amen. Because he really wants you to understand that from the get-go, Mark's not wasting any time. His gospel is very fast-paced. His gospel is very much about action. It's not about words. Of all the gospel accounts, Mark has the fewest words of Jesus in it, but it has all of the action of Jesus in it. And so of all the gospel accounts, this has the fewest sermons. Of all the gospel accounts, this has the fewest parables. Why? Because Mark is all about action. He wants you to see that Jesus not only says the right things, but he does the right things. And not only that, but he says what? He is the Son of God. There's two big moments in the text at the middle and at the end that Mark really drives home. He wants you to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. The middle way, halfway one is when Peter addresses Jesus. He says, who do people say that I am? And of course, we know the very famous piece of scripture there. We know that you know, the disciples say, some say you're Elias, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Jesus takes it from the crowd. He makes it personal. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, who, what? He says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There's that theme of you are the son of God. 
at the end of the gospel, at the end of Mark's account, we're going to get there in about 14 years, amen? Esther's going to be five by then. Uh, at the end of the gospel account, the Roman soldier is standing at the foot of the cross after Jesus has died. The earth is shaking. The sky is dark. Jesus is dead. The Roman soldier is looking up at this man and says these famous words. Surely this man was the Son of God. Surely this man was the Son of God. You see this over and over again, these winks of the author letting you know that what I'm trying to get you to understand, I'm going to leave you breadcrumbs, I'm going to leave you pearls. You can string together and see that Jesus is who he said he was. And he did the things he did. Why? Because he was the very Son of God. He was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is God's salvation. He is the best news that ever was to be good news. And it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. What I love about Mark is he didn't say, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And at the end of his book, he doesn't say, this is the end of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No, because let me promise you something. The book of Mark, the book of Matthew, the book of Luke, the book of John, and the book of Acts all end not with a period, but with a comma. Why? Because me and you are here today because the good news is still being spread. Me and you are here today, why? Because the church is still expanding. Me and you are here today because the gates of hell have not prevailed. Me and you are here today, why? Because this man who John is writing about, named Jesus, went on to flip the world upside down. We are here today, why? Because the good news spread to all corners of the earth. We are here today because Jesus not only said he was going to bring us salvation, but he brought us salvation. We are here today, why? Because he not only is their Messiah, but he was our Messiah. We're here today, why? Because he has adopted us into his families where we too are children of God. And we are here today, why? Because this, ladies and gentlemen, was just the beginning. Just the beginning. And I wanted us to take the time this morning to walk you through the beginning. Why? Because if you don't really understand the beginning, you won't nearly understand the middle or the end. And there's something powerful when you know where you come from. There's something powerful knowing where things started. There's something powerful seeing where it all began. And there's going to be some of you, I love you, you're going you're to dread some of these series. You're going to be like, man, it's kind of slow. I feel like we're talking about, you know, church history. We're talking about, you know, 50 A.D. I just came here to get some, you know, 316. I mean, come on, Pastor Nick. Uh, you know, you're going to be like, why, I mean, why this, why that? When I want to caution you, I want, to under, I want you to understand something here. If you don't have what these Gospels say, if we don't believe what it says in these four books, if we don't believe what John's going to write about, John Mark's going to write about Jesus, if we don't believe that, you can rip out the rest of it. I really do mean that. If we don't believe the the stories we're going to study and we're going to read. If we don't believe that stuff, we can't believe any of it. Because it's that critical that we really know who Jesus was. It's that critical we really know why he came, 
it's that critical that we really know why he died. Because that is the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. That's all, our, that's all, that's all the hope we have. Is that he lived, he was born through a virgin. That he lived a perfect life. That he died on a criminal's cross. That he resurrected from the grave and he ascended into the clouds. Guys, that's the gospel. And I hate to say it in this day and age, it seems like we have forgot the very basic of things to be entertained by some of the silliest of things. When this is the good news, this is the best news. And this is the news, which we're going to study, that is truly going to change everything. Going to change everything. So I want to encourage you, next couple weeks, I know it's going to be hard, I know there's going to be all kinds of traveling, there's going to be all kinds of things. I want to encourage you to come be a part as we study the book of Mark on Sunday mornings because it's going to blow your mind. It's going to learn a lot of stuff. I hope you leave here today, you'll think, I learned something. I really do hope that happens to you because my goal whenever you leave church is not for you just to feel good, but you really be transformed by the power of God's word. And once again, I know it's going to bore some of you. You're going to be like, man, why are we doing this? Because this is our business. This is our good news. This is the stuff that matters. Well, Pastor Nick, what am I supposed to do with this? Does your faith journey start with this? Do your, does your faith journey have a beginning? Because let me tell you, there's a lot of things you can be born into. You can be born into a Kentucky love and football theme, family, amen? You can be born into a Dallas family. Chris was born into a Dallas family. To take a moment of silence for his NFL career, amen, for the Dallas Cowboys. There's a lot of things you're born into. You cannot be born into the family of God. Look at me. You can't be. You can be raised in church. You can be a good person. You can have all the ESV Bibles you want. You can come to church every Sunday, but you cannot be born into God's family. Your faith has to have a beginning. Because beginnings matter. My beginning walking with Jesus happened when I was 12 years old. When I was 12 years old, I had numerous gospel conversations with my brothers after they got back from a church camp called Centrifuge. And I found out that the Jesus they met at camp was not the Jesus I learned about in Sunday school. I was like, all right, like this stuff's real. And they're like, it is. Because I'd been raised in church my entire life, and yet I'd missed it for 12 years until God started drawing me to himself. And that happened after numerous gospel conversations with him. Guess what? I eventually had a gospel conversation with Mr. Allen. He was our Sunday school teacher. Then Mr. Allen took me to our pastor at the time, Brother Curtis. And I'll never forget it. Brother Curtis went in his office. I remember he had this leather couch, kind of big leather couch. You'd sit down, your thighs would stick together. Amen. I remember sitting on that leather couch. I was nervous as a cat in a room full of rocking chairs, amen. And I was sitting there, and I was nervous as I'll get out because there he was in his suit. I grew up in a Baptist church like that, and I remember he was on, uh, behind his desk, and he came out, and he sat beside me, and he started tapping my leg, and he said, Buddy, we're going to get you taken care of. And I thought, Oh, Lord. And I remember that Sunday morning, he took the time to share the gospel with me. He took the time to answer some questions. He took the time to really lead me down the Roman road is what they used to use back in the day. 
It was in that moment, not because of his words, not because of his actions, not because of anybody else's words or actions, but it was in that moment that I knew the Lord was pressuring on my heart. The Lord, the Lord was calling me to himself. The Lord was saying, you're going to go to hell if you don't make a change. If you don't believe this stuff, if you don't truly take me in my word, if you don't repent, if you don't turn from your sins and trust in me and trust in my son that he died for you, I didn't hear an audible voice, but I knew. Like, I felt that pressure on myself. And at that moment, guess what? He prayed, and he didn't pray. Hey, repeat after me. He didn't pray that because I don't believe in any of that stuff. Some of y'all do. That's all right. But he said, I'm going to pray for you, and I want you to cry out to the Lord. I want you to call out to him. Ask him to save you. You know, I never forget it. Why? Because in that moment, I, I felt the Lord save me. I felt things change. felt things shift for me. Because in that moment, my head knowledge became heart knowledge. Everything I knew about Jesus had changed. Everything now I believed about Jesus. And it was in that moment, in that time, guess what, in that morning, that we were having baptisms. Just so happened we were having baptisms, amen. It just so happened on that day, in that moment, in that time, that my aunt had some spare clothes that my mom had sent with her for me spending the night just in case I get muddy and get dirty. And so it just so happened on that Sunday morning when I got saved and I was 12 years old, they were doing baptisms. And it just so happened I got baptized that Sunday morning when I was 12 years old at our church growing up. And that was the beginning of my walk with Christ. Now, 31 years old, next year will be, you know, 20 years of walking with Jesus. That's good math right there, amen. Good math, checks out. And there have been times, guess what, I've been frustrated with God. There's been times I've been mad at God. There's been times where I haven't been faithful to God. But there has never been a time where he had loved me tenderly and he had been faithful to me. Never been a time. There's been times where I wanted things different than he wanted to give me. And then there's been times where I look back and thank God he didn't give me what I wanted. Because I think what you'll see as we begin the study in Mark that everything has a beginning. And Jesus' life had a beginning. But here's the crazy part. Some of y'all, it's going to blow your mind. Jesus' earthly life had a beginning, but Jesus himself never had a beginning. Don't think about it too much. You'll be up all night. You know, you're like, what, 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 what? That's the truth. he's always existed in the beginning was the word in the beginning was God this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God won't you believe this gospel as we study won't you believe that you're reading true stories of eyewitnesses that really saw this stuff because I believe he was a suffering servant that came to seek and save those who were lost what do you believe? Do you have a beginning?